to Two Girls, One Podcast, the weekly show that, when the apocalypse hits, will likely be the last surviving archive of furry balloon tickle party information. And now, here are the internet librarians who still use a paper card catalog to organize their DVDs. Allison Goldberg and Lindsay Ford. Hello, my friends. It's me, Lindsay. And me, Allie. And we are the two girls on this one podcast where we talk about cool, weird, interesting communities from the internet. Yeah. (laughs) So thanks for being here. Uh, You know, if you're new, these episodes really run the gamut. But we're always looking at something interesting on the internet. And you know what? I feel like since I've been in here, it's been a lot less kinky on this thing. It has, which (laughs) I am upset about. Ooh, sorry. My stool just fell because I am (laughs) not as much taller than Lindsay as I like to pretend. Please don't drop stool while you're uh, podcasting. (laughs) I just shat myself. No, my step stool just fell over. You know, I need a stool. Lindsay and I were talking about this yesterday. We need we need step stools in, in um, every room. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm recording in my closet, but I have a stool here, too. I'm just imagining the mic suspended from the ceiling and uh, Allie's like needs a step stool to reach it. <laughs> and she chose to put it there. Yeah, yes. that would be odd. That's, that's um, great. So if you heard that crash, that was that. But yeah, the show's been less kinky since Lindsay joined. I and know. I'm so cool. We just so exhaustively covered kinks before you arrived. It's true. I I think maybe we should jump back in and, and cover some of them again. Well, we might be doing a kink thing soon, actually. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I don't know if I should spoil it or not, but there's a kink we've tried to cover. And I think I have a new lead uh, from one of our listeners. Our listeners sent me the uh, one of our listeners sent me this kink. I love that. We tried to pitch it. It. The guy didn't show up, and then he found a new contact for me. <laughs> oh my I'm gosh. not going to name this listener because like, maybe no, he doesn't no. want to be named for this kink, but thank you, sir. As you can tell, we really do listen to the people who listen to us. So if there's something that you want to hear, please jump into the Discord, send us an email, and we will absolutely try to talk about it on the show <laughs> guests ghosting on us you know mm-hmm. like we we put a lot of work in to uh plan an episode and find the right source or community member etc set it all up schedule across 16 time zones and then a guest is like bye <laughs> never shows up and then we have like half a show recorded or we spend yeah. a lot of time re-record so all that just, it's not an excuse but it's more like you know the shows can be challenging to make. And so we yeah. appreciate your listenership and your financial support as well. Just just throwing that in Patreon. there. Patreon.com slash 2G1P. Yeah. Thanks, y'all. We love you. And we hope you continue to love us. So yeah, this is the part of the show where we just talk about our lives. And in my life right now, I am volunteering to read to kids on Saturday. And I'm very excited about it. And if you want to come and read to kids. I already do that. <laughs> <laughs> What? <laughs>
when? I have been volunteering with a literacy program for three years here in L.A. <laughs> what? Nobody knows that I secretly do this on the side. I don't want anyone to know that I might be a decent person, so yeah. I don't talk about it. <laughs> You're really hiding that so but, well. Yeah, I've been tutoring um, with reading partners here in L.A. for three years, so uh, I'm not going to join you because my the limit. I'm a decent person only some days of the week, and it's like yeah, I can't yeah. do more than that. You know. Yeah. Really- I just like it's like oh hey does any you have anything to plug? Oh, yeah, saving the world, fixing well, literacy. The world's oh, fucked, okay, but um, it's called Reading Partners. So, oh. you know, check it out. It's actually, I think, in many cities, but uh, yeah, I've been doing, this is my third school year with them. My student this year is adorable. Well, because my fir- the first year, the guy, like, the little kid, like, did not want to learn to read, and it was mm. really frustrating. So mm. I wanted to be like, bro. You want to get laid later? Like you, anything you, you want to play wow. video games? Like anything you ever want to do, you're going to have to read, but you can't say that. So to a Especially not to like a, was he 10? <laughs> no, he wasn't quite 10, but he was, it was like pretty scary how um, illiterate he was. Yeah. <laughs> but I heard he's doing better, but my student this year, like, so the format is like, I read to them, then we do a lesson, then they read to me. But like last week I was reading to her and she was like, can I read this? I mean, she just like loves Aww. to read. It's so cute. It's so cute. So. So what are you doing this weekend? Well, it's called uh, Reading to Kids. <laughs> and my friend Kristen <laughs> told me about it. And they're doing, it's like a we need holiday. A good name. We need a good name. It's got to be catchy. It's going to be fun for kids. And what about mm, reading Read to, to children? Mean, the one I do is called Reading Partners. Like they're all pretty straightforward, <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> Processing language. It's like, we want you to know we're here to get kids to read. <laughs> But yeah, so this one is a holiday-themed one. I think that Santa and his helper will be visiting the room where I will be reading to kids at some point, Mm, like as a surprise. So it's cute. Yeah. Yeah. Wait, and this is your first time with reading to kids? Yes, it is. <laughs> There's a, it's a big event where lots and of different schools and libraries are participating on the same day reading oh, to kids. So it's cool. What's their jingle? Hit it. Reading to kids, reading to kids, reading to kids is fun. You know what's funny? That's, That's like exactly how I imagined it. And That's you really it exactly. Good. good. I'm glad. I can't believe I'm in my third school year with this program. That's awesome. I'm proud of you. <laughs> it's my dirty little secret. <laughs> you plug everything, but this year, like, no one can know. No one can know. <laughs> well, I don't need, I don't need to plug that I no, do this. True. You know what I mean? Although I guess I could plug that, like, other people should Other sign people up. should and do it, yeah. You know what? Yeah. I started doing it, and then my mom started getting ads from them. So I'm pretty sure they're everywhere, and they're, okay. like, really doing well with their targeted ads because my mom started <laughs> getting ads for them. I have a friend who's a big volunteer person who I just find out what she's doing and then I do it. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not a big volunteer person. I am a medium volunteer person. <laughs> yes. I'm a tag along volunteer. But uh, speaking of plugging, I uh, still need men for Love Isn't Blind. I'm trying to do the show monthly, but it really depends on finding charismatic men who are up for shenanigans. So if you are a charismatic man who is up for shenanigans, please visit loveisntblind.co wherever you are. Right now I'm doing it monthly in L.A., but as word hopefully spreads, I would love to take it to other cities. I got an application from Seattle today, which was exciting, but also not helpful for my December 16th show, for which I don't have enough men yet. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, today. So the shenanigans that we are up to today is we are going to be talking about 
archiving the internet. It's kind of a weird thing to think about because all we've ever been told is once something's on the internet, it's there forever. <laughs> but the thing is, it gets forgotten about. It's like that imaginary play thing in um, Inside Out, <laughs> the saddest oh, part of the movie. Anybody? Wow. Just me? That's, yeah, okay. That's, no, you're oh, one with me. Oh, mm-hmm. my God. You really went there. Yeah, <gasps> it's there. And he disappears because yes. he's not needed anymore. Yes. I just, just watched that movie. <laughs> uh, it's sad. So it could be there in the deep recesses of the internet, but it's forgotten about and it's lonely, except when... Jason Scott comes and finds it and then (laughs) documents it for the rest of us for all of eternity. And so we are going to be talking about the ways that people dedicate themselves to storing memories of the internet. And not only that, but like sort of digital life. So Jason published the online archive Discmaster, which also sort of documents things that were passed around on actual discs. I know, you know, Gen, Gen Z... It wasn't all just flash drives. We used to have to have discs of all kinds, floppy disks, CDs. You know what my favorite thing about like software is, or one of the little trivial things, is that the the icon for saving something, like saving your work, saving your progress, is a floppy disk that no fucking human on earth still, I mean, I'm, I'm exaggerating, but like what kid understands what that means, but it has become an anachronistic way to represent saving. I really like when people have floppy disks as coasters, and I like I the have idea one of a right Gen here. Z, yeah, I like the idea of a Gen Z kid being like, why is the coaster the save symbol? <laughs> like that's the only place they'll see it, you know? A colleague of mine got me probably for like a little Christmas gift, like an office Christmas gift, a, a set of these floppy disk coasters. And the one I'm looking at right here that my drink is on says Y2K update, like written on the the uh, label. Great. Because also a Y2K update, I'm going to be honest, was on a CD. That was not on a floppy disk. Ah, good. Yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Two, this was 1999. I don't know. Depends what yeah, computer bro. you were so, using at the time. Matt, yeah. today are you going to give us old trivia like from the archives that you've oh, already done before? Today's trivia is going way back, but uh, mm, the way way back machine. We, we have talked a little bit about like oh digital archivism and mm-hmm. what how we would cover it or what we should cover. Yeah, and I and I'm very interested in this idea that like. There's a ton of bullshit on the internet and what a Herculean effort it is to save it all. And should we save it all? And then the flip side of that is like, we don't know what will be important 500 years from now. So the stupid shit on TikTok or YouTube that we think is ephemeral might be very valuable to a historian. Like, imagine if we knew what people were saying on the streets of, you know, Ancient Rome. Yeah. Yeah. Just like day-to-day chat, chat. What are we chatting about? exactly. We can save it. We can have a record of all of human, not all of, but like a a huge cross-section of human history can be saved forever if we want it. Yeah. And these are some people on the internet who are working really hard to, to preserve human human knowledge. All right, I'm ready for trivia. Today we are covering digital archiving, preservation of modern knowledge. Today's trivia is about the Library of Alexandria, the famous center of scholarly learning and the archive of the ancient world from around 250-ish BC to about 47 BC. Uh, We all know the story about how the library was full of scrolls and ancient knowledge and then was burned to the ground and everything lost but the raging fire that consumed all of humanity's knowledge 
is largely a myth. I have spoken about the library occasionally on this podcast, and I did not realize that that is not entirely true. So I learned something from this trivia as well. Wow. While it's difficult to know exactly what happened to the library, researchers have compared conflicting historical accounts and generally agree that this is what happened. What was the actual fate of the Library of Alexandria uh, in Egypt? I have three choices for you. A, most of the scrolls in the library were moved to Rome by Julius Caesar when he besieged Alexandria in 47 BC during the destruction of the Roman Republic and consolidation of Caesar's new empire. The beginning of the Roman Empire, they moved them all. That's choice A. Or was it B, a massive flood was actually the cause of most knowledge destruction in 82 BC. Only a fraction of the scrolls were salvaged and moved to various other libraries across the ancient world. And the library of Alexandria was purposefully raised and burned to make way for farmland to feed starving Egyptians during a period of extended famine. That is choice B, a flood, and then uh, got rid of it. Or is it C, the library simply declined over decades due to lack of funding and political conflict. Dang, this all sounds so current. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to go with B. Okay. Allie chooses the flood. I really enjoyed B as well. It seemed like it was layered. Hmm. I think it had to be... Uh, oh, man. I hate to pick the same exact one as Allie, but I do like B as well. Okay. So you are both going with choice B. A flood... Most and of it got destroyed, and then they're like, you know what? We don't need this fucking library anymore. We got to feed some people. So that is choice B. Yeah, that seems like a, a really nice thing to do if it's yeah. already destroyed. Like, don't, okay. you know, I don't know. All right. All I right. just feel like that also um, goes along with, like, Noah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it also can explain why this is, I mean, this is a really good trick if you're tricking us with this one, because it could explain why people think it was a fire. You know? Right. Because there was a fire, but that's not what destroyed everything. Okay. We will find out the correct answer after this very important, informative break. Our show is sustained by some of the beautiful patrons via their $10 or more donation to our Patreon. Thank you to Wesley Cordell, Jerry Duran, Jessica Fox, Kathy Phillips, Matthew Scott, Melissa Elliott, William, Jessica Kybell, Kelsey Murray, and Ken M. All of you keep our library open. Just kidding. I don't have a library, but I will have one if I ever get really, really rich. You keep my library open, if you know oh. what I'm saying. That sounds dirty. Yeah, that's why I did it. If you would like us to make weirdly <laughs> vague, suggestive remarks about you and your contribution to the podcast, feel free to donate at the $10 or more level to patreon.com slash 2G1P. And now a really real advertisement entitled, Want to Trade? VW Bus Transporter in Webster, Texas. From the internet's number one online marketplace for gently used burial plots, Craigslist.org. I am looking for a bus. I am interested in a project or a fully restored. I am willing to trade up to four cemetery plots at Forest Park in Webster. These are premium plots that can be transferred into your name. They're all four side by side. The number of plots I'm willing to offer depends on how much your bus is worth. 
These plots go for around $3,000 each if you buy them from Forest Park. If you bought them from an owner, the price would be much lower. In short, don't be afraid to make an offer. I will entertain all offers. Email only for now. I hope someone who's really thinking ahead uh, responds to that ad. Uh, I hope they put a recipe on their gravestones that they buy. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. It's a good deal. Like four grave plots, that's forever. A van, that's going to break down in like 10 years. I mean, maybe less. You think grave yeah. plots are forever, but I <laughs> I know a lot of history of some parks that used to be a full-on graveyard, bro. <laughs> I mean, I've said it before. I just want to be a tree in the afterlife. Put yeah, me in one of those bags and turn me into a tree. Looking forward to it. <laughs> tree sack me. Tree sack, baby. I hope it's a tiny tree and it doesn't grow beyond five feet. That Don't <laughs> jinx my afterlife, you monster. But it has beautiful flowers. I want to be a big honking oak tree or something. I want my outside to finally match my insides. My insides, yeah. There's a little stone next to Lindsay's tree that says, sorry, this would have been bigger, but she was very short. <laughs> Rude. <laughs> now I see it ma- it'll match your insides. All right. Yeah. It's time for the trivia answer. I, I got to keep things, us on the rails. No one else is, you know. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, things from a long time ago that are no longer here. The Library of Alexandria burned to the ground, or did it? That is commonly the, the folklore, the wisdom, but it is... Probably not true. What happened to all the scrolls and the building itself? Uh, Nobody chose A, that Julius Caesar moved all the stuff to Rome when he conquered Egypt. Was it B, it was actually a flood and then they burned it purposefully down later to make room for food, uh, crop growing. Allie and Lindsay both chose B. Nobody chose C, the library just declined over decades because uh, people stopped caring about it. Are you sticking with your answer? Yeah, yeah. Sure. The other two right. are much more reasonable. <laughs> I mean, they, they <laughs> but that's, you know, it's why I'm going to stay with B. Your strategy of picking the most unhinged answer uh, is uh, has been working well for you. Uh, <laughs> the correct answer is, it was C. Oh, it just slowly declined. That's so sad. In a nutshell, Egypt was ruled by a dynasty of Greeks called the Ptolemies from uh, 305 BC to 30 BC. This is an important dynasty family. I, I, I remember learning about them in school. Um, P-T-O-L-E-M. Yeah, Ptolemy. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ptolemy Seventh was kind of a, a historical footnote. Maybe he was a child. I don't know. He was murdered by his uncle Ptolemy VIII, uh, and when VIII ascended the throne, he immediately punished and exiled anyone who supported the previous king. I don't know why that rivalry was there, but like basically a usurper and then anyone who was in uh, Ptolemy VII's court was like kicked out of Egypt. This included expelling foreign scholars from Alexandria. So basically all the very smartest people were sent out of the city uh, and they all continued doing their writing and teaching and they established schools. So there was like a diaspora of like smart people from the time because of this political infighting. Basically, the prestige of the library was immediately reduced when this happened. Meanwhile, the, the society became very socially and economically unstable. There was a lot of unrest. So the kings paid very little attention to the library and scholarship in general. But also, listen to this, they started appointing political supporters to become head librarians. So what was once like 
a very prestigious job. If you were the head librarian of Alexandria, you were like the smartest person in the known world. Now it was a sham. They were just appointing them as political favors. So all the actual smart people were like, fuck this. So all the smart people and the scrolls and the knowledge bailed on the library. Then when Julius Caesar was on a conquering spree, uh, his troops set fire to the sh- Egyptian ships in the harbor, which eventually the fire spread to to the the library. Historical accounts seem to be conflicting about this. Some writers of the t- uh, you know contemporary writers are like it burned a warehouse and some scrolls were lost. Other writers are like it burned some of the library and then they rebuilt it. But the point is, there was a massive brain drain from Alexandria way before any disaster or fire or war ever hit. And this, I don't know, it's not mind-blowing, but it's really, I don't know whether to take comfort or terror from it because it's like political bullshit (laughs) and appointing your cronies to like universities and education and whatever. It's very Trumpian. DeVos. Destroys your country. It uh, sounded like now. (laughs) The DeVos of Alexandria. I thought of Betsy DeVos. Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I thought of. Trash monster. Wild? Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad we're not learning from history. That's really a great (laughs) trademark of humanity. Love it for all of us. Um, But I think now it is time to learn from history because our guest is here. Woohoo! Our guest is the free range archivist at the Internet Archive. Jason Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. (laughs) So I guess please explain to us a little bit what it means to be the free range archivist at the Internet Archive. When I was hired by the Internet Archive, I had already had a side career and then it was starting to become a full-time career doing very generalized archiving, collecting of material, putting it online, making it available, talking it about, uh, uh, you know, hype up and uh, all the different aspects of like what we think of as everything from hoarding and collecting to preserving and presenting. And so when I was hired, they said, just keep doing what you're doing. So do it with us do you have a title? And I decided on free range archivist because I knew that I would never wake up knowing exactly how the day was going to go. And I might as well have a name that reflects that. (laughs) That's great. Amazing. So what is the mission of the internet archive? Officially, the mission of the internet archive is universal access to all knowledge which is a huge steam shovel of hope and uh, is, of course, always going to run into weird limits here and there. But in general, if we can find something digital, we will present it to the world. And if we find the world has difficulty reaching it, we will do our best to make it easier to reach. And uh, that was the kind of general mission from the beginning when it was founded in 1996 by a person who made way too much money and decided to take his riches. And instead of buying an island that doesn't exist anywhere in the world, uh, he said, boy, now I get to be a librarian, which is a real interesting situation. (laughs) And so ever since then, he has kind of really kind of like stumbled into different areas as they were needed. And it feels very improvised, which was perfect for me. When I first joined the archive in 2011, it had been around for, you know, well over a decade. And I remember that the founder, Brewster Kale, said, 
I think Jason makes me feel like I make the Library of Congress feel, which was like, here's somebody who's even a little more wilder than I am in terms of let's get all these books online. Let's get all these <laughs> documents and pamphlets. And I was like, yeah, but what about hip hop mixtapes and, and video games and uh, Twitch streams and just kept going in these other directions where half the time people are like, what is this? And then within six months, they're, you know, getting thank yous from people for being one of the largest repositories of whatever it is. And they're like, ah, yes, just like we planned. <laughs> so kind of like in my career with them in the last 12 years, it's really been, you know, an awful lot of like me recognizing something out there. It has every component except for dependable, stable bandwidth and disk space and search capability. Hmm. And I try to provide it or encourage it. When you think archive, uh, some people think piles of old books or maybe large amounts of documents. And sure, we do that. But there's also other material, especially nowadays, that's very much a case of like, this is important and somebody should really be preserving it. But, and I get this speech a lot from somebody uh, like, yeah, I'd love to host it with you. But, um, <laughs> oh man, it's like 15 or 16 gigabytes. And I'm like, <laughs> I uploaded 15 gigabytes by mistake yesterday. So feel free <laughs> say, 15 to give it to me. Nothing. Yeah. Uh, on an average day, the archive brings in from its users and various projects about 75 terabytes a day of new material. Wow. So that's Yikes. everything from... The web crawling, because a lot of people know us about the Wayback Machine, but also books and movies, music, software, uh, generalized data sets kind of split down the middle between things we are doing, like crawling the web to pre you know, present on the Wayback Machine. And somebody out there, you know, is like, here's 500 Vaporwave songs I think you should have, or here's a whole <laughs> bunch of uh, printouts from manuals. You know, eventually when they hired me, they had to put me under a manager and my manager's name is Alexis and she's the director of collections. Mm -hmm. So, so technically uh, I'm in the collections team. And that means basically we're watching things come through. We're trying to deal with trends. We're trying to, help process what's coming in. And, and in those collections, the vast majority of uploads, frankly, are audio for some reason, podcasts, news, bands, albums. And then probably the next largest thing is movies, music, um, sorry, movies in terms of um, uh, videos or, you know, recorded television or news. And then it kind of goes from there. In the 90s, Brewster, Kale, and his other collaborators got their hands on a lot of web crawling. And that was actually how he made his money. Uh, he created, with another couple people, a company called Alexa Internet. And Alexa Internet was, if you want to you know, really boil it down, uh, Nielsen ratings for the web. So this is like circa 94 to 96, you have a website, mm. Alexa internet will say, oh, you're the 537th most browsed website, you know, in the area of religious studies. And to be able to give those kind of statistics, they had to browse the web constantly and take snapshots of websites. 
So he has this company. They sell it to uh, Amazon for a couple hundred million dollars in Amazon stock back in 1997. (laughs) And um, he made a deal where he said, hey, can I have those web snapshots every once in a while when you're done with them? And so suddenly he's sitting on a growing set of old websites. Around 2001, 2002, I don't know who suggested it to him and the team, but they said, wouldn't it be cool if you could look back on all those old websites and browse them? (laughs) And they were like, that sounds like a fun toy for a weekend. And then it becomes one of the central foundational blocks of the web's memory. Just this week, we're at the center, for instance, at the uh, Elon Musk, Matt Taibbi, nothing burger, right? Where they said, we found the Twitter files. We found where they made a deal with the Bidens. And wow. people went ahead and were able to find on the Wayback Machine the tweets that had been taken down and see why they were taken down because they were intimate photos that were leaked, which violates the terms of service. Wow. But if the archive hadn't been providing those original tweets, they could have promised that they were anything. <laughs> Back in 2002, 2003, they stumble onto a true killer app for the web, which is memory and recall. And that's how most people remember and go back to us and recall us. Yeah. I'm curious as to which kinds of groups are coming to the archive the most. Like, who is the most engaged? Is there... Are there any particular communities that are most like, we want to see what you've documented on this, or could you look at this area of the internet for us? So to mention one of the ethics kind of built into the archive is we scramble the logs that come in and we don't really retain them. So we can't do those kind of deep dive analytics that other companies do because we don't want to keep any record of how people use us a la a library but as somebody who spends a lot of time extremely online and who keeps track of mentions of the archive i can tell you in kind of a reflective way what kind of people are using the archive so one of the top ones with a bullet are genealogists people who are really trying to track down family histories, town histories, trying to track uh, trees of births and deaths or find out what different towns were like because we have so many yearbooks, phone books, uh, registries, because we don't charge for access. So you don't have to spend $2.50 to find out if that really was your aunt's house or something. (laughs) If, If we've got it, you've got it. So genealogists, friggin' love us. Live tapers, folks who tape like the Grateful Dead or Fish or a bunch of other bands. There's a live music archive that is a raucous success. The main group is called E-Tree or the Live Music Archive, and they do all that level of insanity like hyper-focused individuals can do, like telling you exactly what kind of equipment was used to record it and what the show was and what all the songs were and letting you cross-correlate. When I joined, I was like, we need to really step up the software collecting. And we did. We're probably the largest. Actually, I'm very sure we are the largest software collection that's downloadable on the internet. 
the joke I always say is find me a bigger one and I will download it. <laughs> it's easily hundreds of terabytes of data. You know, space doesn't scare us. And, and <laughs> I always say it's like a huge balkanized set of islands. When you ask me about groups, <laughs> this is kind of the delight. Even I, who am the biggest fanboy of the Internet Archive, can't tell you everything going on. One killer app that is just, I will tell you, not only is it beloved, but when I have made to clean it up, when I've tried to clean it up, I got such a violent pushback, I had to walk away, is old-time radio. So we're talking mid-20s to uh, present-day uh, radio dramas, performances, interview programs, top-notch, top-notch audio entertainment. And they have a collection on the archive under old-time radio, and it is a mess. It is a <laughs> gargantuan, unsorted mess. And when I have tried, as I recently did, to quote-unquote, total air quotes, fix it, you know, <laughs> move it around, <laughs> classify it. Imagine your crankiest, oldest aunt went into her room and you moved her reading glasses into a reading glasses case. Just the screeching that occurred. I had to move it all back into a huge crap pile because everybody knew how to negotiate the crap pile. So <laughs> I had to walk away from it. There are people who are like every night playing old time radio huh. and we don't even know. And so, so <laughs> like, that's kind of like what's most magical about it. So how do you decide what is not worth saving? You know, it gets actually pretty funny. You get into some interesting philosophical arguments. So uh, first of all, there's always a cost and resources issue. Uh, the archive right now, I think costs, depending on which numbers you run, somewhere between 16 and $20 million a year to run. What? It's not that bad, believe me. We have... Where does this money come from? Yeah. Couple places. Personal fortune of the rich guy, lots of grants, user donations. We have a couple businesses associated with the archive. One is called Archive It, which can be thought of as Wayback Machine Pro. Like, you are a school or an institution, you want a record of all your your web-facing data, so you pay us to crawl you on every day, and we have excellent interfaces that allow you to go back and replay your web. Archive it is something like 80 or 90% of that market. Uh, so it brings in a few million. We have a business scanning in books and materials where we often make deals where we say we get to put up a copy of what you have, but you're scanning at a much cheaper price that brings in money. We just, we were, did a trivia segment about the library of Alexandria. And, um, <laughs> in my research, I noticed that ships that would dock at Alexandria were required to hand over their books in order to dock at the, at the, you know, the local port. And then they would make a copy of the books, give the ships, the copies and keep the originals in the library. Like that was like the fee for stopping in Egypt in like 200 BC, literally exactly what you just described, but the digital version. Yeah. I mean, you run into this, you know, this upper bounds problem when you're talking about, you know, we're free and open. And then believe me, people will do plenty to, uh, to, to use that material. 
it's funny when I say, you know, 16 to 20 million, because I know to you folks, uh, depending, you, you say, wow, that's a lot of money. And I'm like, you know, that's barely Facebook's party budget. <laughs> you know, we were in the top 200 of websites where something like we range between like 180 and 240. And so we're getting a million plus visitors a day from those numbers and the amount of people we have, which, you know, the core teams are like under a hundred people. We have some people who do scanning. There are another hundred. It's actually a very small team for what the effect is. Elon Musk's, you know, weird, oh, I can run Twitter with 50 people experiment aside. A lot of the costs besides salaries is this hardware where we're constantly adding petabytes of disk space every few months for filling up. And so the fundraising thing is always there. But um, in terms of getting back to your philosophical question of like, where do you say no? You have to start asking questions about how much disk space, honestly, is this taking? Now, I, I personally have gotten some of the most ephemeral edge of use case garbage that I have put up on the archive because I know that it plays a part in understanding the, the, the arc of humanity. So I'm fine with that. Mm-hmm. And then there are these software defined radios on the archive, uh, sorry, on the internet where you go to a site called web SDR and you can actually browse the entire radio spectrum in real time of an area. You can browse through and you can see it portrayed as like a graphical waterfall. And I think that's amazing. And boy, wouldn't it be neat to keep all of that. But it turns out like if you look at the storage costs, it starts to work into hundreds of terabytes. Now, when I first joined the archive, they told me, please don't make any items bigger than five gigabytes. And then I was like, (laughs) oh, too late. I made one that was 20. And then later they were like, please don't make it larger than 50. And I was like, too, too, too late. I made one that was two terabytes. I actually broke the archive for about three hours. Oh, no. Now they've got a hard limit. I can't make anything larger than two terabytes. But all I'm doing is thinking about disk usage, not about anything else. If you can produce, honestly, a text-based description of every, let's make this up. I'm making this up. I promise you. Um, <laughs> uh, you have a an AI that is visualizing every car that parks in front of some famous hotspot. And so you're producing basically text output, which compresses incredibly well. So even if you describe a million cars, it's going to be less than a couple megabytes with compression. Well, then go for it. Knock yourself out. But if you're creating a 4k image of a bonsai plant in your house and you're just (laughs) uploading these hundreds of gigabytes of video of a non-moving plant who you won't see any growth in across you know 35 terabytes across a month but how will i know how big it was on wednesday honestly how will i know we also by the way get into this problem because we have done such a good job of being thought of as a permanent storage. And so somebody will like say like, oh, this, this, this guy is amazing, but he deletes his YouTube videos after a month. 
he's a controversial commentator and he doesn't want to get old stuff dredged up. So he only keeps the last month. So I've been downloading them. So I'm going to upload them. And I'm like, you know, that guy is a business. Like you do know that, right? Like that's like six people. You just see (laughs) the guy on the screen and they've made a business decision and they're producing a product and you are taking their product and you're taking one of its aspects and you're shoving it in our hands and then running away into the night like a goblin and letting us deal with the ramifications. That ain't as cool as you think, bro. Now, if you want to be a friggin' archive hero, keep all of these things. And then later the guy's running for governor and says, I never said anything negative about blank. And you want to pull out, you know, a show from five years ago and upload it to the archive and a bunch of other places. Well, you know, have a ball. And most people will say, and this is always my favorite point in the Socratic dialogue, but that's so much wasted disk space. And I go, yes, it is. <laughs> you know, that's a, that, that's a major, uh, just, just recently I was just going through like how much Twitch stream uploads we get. And these are like, you know, five hours of an anime avatar playing Team Fortress 2. Yikes. I get it. Dude, I don't. What's nice about being what the archive is, is it's very pure. It very much feels like you're preserving humanity and you're preserving history and memory. And people get swept up in that, but then they kind of come up for themselves what that means. That pure mission bumps up against what people think is historical, what's valuable. Uh, so I haven't gone to the archive before. So if I go there, how do I find like the section that's archiving black Twitter? So I can just find all the funniest things that were said in like 2018. So you're going to have a problem with something like black Twitter because it's a social media matrix. Like It's basically a communications network elsewhere that we have archived pieces of. It might do good to go to archive.org, type, quote, black Twitter, unquote, in the search and just see what pops up. But I almost guarantee you, and I'm not going to fill this podcast with the sound of me typing, it's going to be variant. It's going to be either somebody referenced the term it might be an essay. It might be some podcasts. It might be a bunch of weird stuff like that. Then you can, next to the search engine, one of the selections besides look at the metadata is read text contents. And then you'll see under that where our OCR, where our character recognition looked at printed or transcribed material And that phrase went by, and I almost guarantee you it will probably overwhelm you, like in terms of it'll be so generalized. How do you decide, again, what to keep, what does not deserve keeping, and how do you make sure that it's inclusive of diverse voices? So Black Twitter is a weird one because you're talking about Twitter. It's Twitter. And Twitter's oncoming waterfall of content. Directly or indirectly, we archive a lot of Twitter on the Internet Archive's Wayback Machine. But unfortunately, the interface to finding things is not great. What you really kind of need is the URL of the tweet. 
And that might be useful if you have an article that's quoting tweets and suddenly it's gone. The tweet is gone because the account was suspended or deleted itself. And if you're lucky, you can go to the archive uh, Wayback Machine, copy in that URL that's now coming in blank and see what was being said. What I think you're also talking about here is a semantic awareness of what's on the web. You can't ask us right now, can you show me every game that has a female protagonist? Like, there's no semantic building for that. Right, but I think it's not about um, searching for a female protagonist so much as are these voices, you know, for instance, you said you're downloading a lot of Twitch streams, right? So how do you make sure that representation of voices are archived at the archive so much of it is coming in as a receptacle like like i said you know thousands of items a day and so on we tend to fail at that in terms of you gotta really have terms like if again getting back to black twitter if you have a voice you know you have a a, a name it's sometimes easier to find it, but we won't be a good discovery tool for knowing what names to search for. But what about the hashtag? Can you just search the hashtag, hashtag black Twitter? Not easily because we don't have a directed Twitter search engine yet. Got we, it. Okay. We don't want to move into that yet because it's an active company that derives its value from driving customers towards its access. Uh, we have a lot of old magazines pulled from microfilm that are out of publish, out of, out of uh, you know, existence. And we can OCR that text. And then you can search that text for these terms and be able to find things because those products are gone. But it's not as easy for us to set up something that's competing with Twitter. And now that Twitter is owned by a desperate, insane billionaire, it actually gets even harder, Right. In terms of diversity, we don't have any situation where we disallow or avoid the way that the archive moves. It just moves through all the domains that it can. It tries to do captures of domains using various criteria, including mentions in news stories, links out of Wikipedia, registrations of domains, and then revisiting those links that are given. We also do it from tweets. Uh, if you tweet a link on Twitter, we generally try to capture that, that link. Are there biases built into that? Absolutely. And uh, it tends to favor English, for example, because the sources we tend to pull from tend to be English. And I would love to see us get better at various bits. Is it the same for when you were mentioning Twitch, where it's just like, how many streams can we capture? Less Twitch, more podcasts, for example. We try to grab every podcast. Like we're archived? <laughs> I would almost guarantee that I can find you. Mm -hmm. We may have made it hard to find you because we don't want to compete with your own feed. I went from sounding like a grandiose circus master telling you about all the wild animals to suddenly sounding like a, a lawyer on the third day of the trial. But it's only because I want it clear Archiving is not a neutral act. It is fundamentally mm -hmm. based on choice, process, verification, and uh, unintended biases or intentional biases. But every archive is dealing with this on every level. And so it is tough to you know, interrogate that to yourself. You know, we have, we have mechanisms for people to donate 
URLs to be scanned. But, you know, you're letting the lumpen proletariat who are comfortable with the concept of the Wayback Machine choose what's getting archived on the fly there. And that is a biased audience. We do the first part, which is to like leave the welcome mat open as wide as possible. So people upload whatever they upload and to some extent don't get as much guidance on what they're allowed or not allowed to upload, but we're not like preloading it. Now, again, there's bias built in that because it's people who are comfortable speaking up or feeling that they can do it as opposed to people who are waiting for permission. Here's a good way to get your stuff deleted off the archive because we basically delete nothing. Upload a bunch of encrypted files with no metadata, like where I can't look at what's in it. And the reason why is because nobody can make use of it except for the original person. But if anybody else can access it, it's probably going to stay up and be accessible. And that philosophy, I try to get the word out about archive.org slash upload, throw it in there. One, I have a thing that shows me when people are uploading a lot of things. And I noticed one group was uploading a lot of newspapers and they were in Chinese and Japanese and they were very old. And I said finally to them, hi, what's up? Cause you've uploaded 70,000 newspapers. And they said, oh, yeah, we're a bunch of academics who uh, realize that with the Chinese takeover of Hong Kong, they're going to delete all of the microfilm archives of Chinese newspapers and Japanese newspapers to remove the history. Oh, wow. And so we're duplicating all of it at the archive because we want it to be safe. And I was like... Cool. Let me show you. you know, let me let me give you a mechanism right for right here, so right this way, sir. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> it's a real chicken and egg problem trying to find groups that have traditionally felt themselves looked over, ignored, or not made whole in terms of maintaining history, and trying to interface with them in a way that the archive seems like a good home. If you look at the managerial slash employee structure of the archive, it's pretty white. It's pretty male. A lot of that just comes from the founder kept bringing in people he knew and he went to MIT and then moved out to Silicon Valley. So he kind of is built that way. And we ended up having a couple internal revolutions about that a couple years ago. So we're better, which means we're merely bad at it. (laughs) But I would like us to be much better. A lot of it comes to like laying out these tools and trying to make the tools neutral in terms of you don't feel you need to go through a gatekeeper. Yeah. Yeah. So knowing that that's the case, how are you reaching out to people? Because you upload a lot of the stuff to the site, right? You like you choose things to upload to the archive. So how are you reaching out to people and letting them know not just that it's available, but what you're choosing to upload to it? Like, it seems like there's probably a lot of space for you personally to search out more various and diverse voices to invite them to upload to the archive or for you yourself to upload to the archive. One of the thoughts that was made was 
we need to have more events and more presentations and host them. So now we are hosting a couple, sometimes as many as two or three a week, book readings, panels, presentations. And I've been kind of watching that about the diversity skew. It's doing pretty good on gender. It could do better on race and it could do better on culture. I would love that. If any of your listeners <laughs> had people, especially, it doesn't have to be them. It yeah. can be authors, speakers. I would love to have those folks. I don't think we've ever run one in another language, for example. One of our directors is Japanese. Her family was in an internment camp, a concentration camp in, in, in World War II. We became a repository for a pile of Japanese-American writings, especially books that were obscure or out of print related to the concentration camps. We had presentations from people who had been there. We had digitized eight millimeter video, sorry, eight millimeter film that had been shot at the camps that had never been developed. All it took was one person in the organization and they were able to interface to communities, but they were also part of that community. I literally am on the hunt for repositories. But the other razor edge of that that I do want to make clear is that if I do show up and I talk like this, it can sometimes have a real Christopher Columbus feel to people. And I have to be very careful when I phrase it because I want to make clear to them I'm not going to be presenting Jason Scott's collection of racial diversity. It's a diplomatic process as well as a mere technological one. We'd just love to wrap it with what do you think is the value of the archives? Aside from the obvious of it is preserving these things, what do you think is the value of it? I've already seen multiple ways in which the archives part in various stories was important being able to produce evidence and uh, representation of events that happened that otherwise have kind of slipped between the cracks. The websites have gone down. Uh, the person has died. The material is no longer being hosted where it was, or the companies who were hosting it as part of their business product took it away. And we were able to complete that story. So that's one very important function. Another function is that it's actually pretty hard over time to host any sizable material in a way that's easily findable. You know, there's torrents and there's Dropbox and there's Mega, but it's kind of surprising sometimes. All it takes is for a person to kind of take their eyes off the ball, for people to stop seating, and it disappears. So there are collections of material that we have that were once super needed and then months go by and nobody's asking for it and the torrent dies and then people suddenly say wait a minute that was really important where is it and if you're lucky somebody has a copy you don't even have to be that lucky we might have a copy the internet underground music archive ayuma which is one of the earliest streaming and music services got bought out got shut down uh, one day somebody came to me and said, you know, I have most of it on a backup tape. 
And I said, well, I'd like a copy, please. And they gave it to me and it's up at the archive. And instead of being furious, the founder of Ayuma redirected the Ayuma.com domain to it. And out of like 265,000 bands, I think 50 have been like, please take it down again. This is like Oscar Isaac's ska band. Oh my gosh. You're speaking straight to my heart. There was, there was, it's <laughs> funny because the description says our lead singer, Oscar is going to acting school, but he says he'll be back afterwards. And I'm like, Oscar's not coming back. Nah, bro. He done with them frosted tips. There was a uh, band made of two people. Uh, the other guy's family didn't approve that he was a, a musician and he died early, very young, like thirties. And they threw out all of his stuff. So there was no like copy of any of the music, except that it had uploaded to Ayuma. And he let us know the living you know, partner said, you brought my friend back for me because all this music was lost. And here's all our music again. The archives experience and its purpose is to try to be that last resort, that area of last possibility where a lot of material that would otherwise disappear can be referenced again. On the daily, we get fan mail, we get thank yous, we uh, get small donations saying, I guess I should donate to you since you're the only reason I even have any record of my dad's website. On the whole, I'm going to call it a win. Yeah. All right. Well, <laughs> I just want to say, by the way, I really appreciate being called on how we're finding voices to archive and how welcoming we are to diversity. And are we, are we fulfilling our stated philosophy and goals? Are we missing something? Are we in the shadow of our own glory and, and, and self uh, aggrandizement of how good we are at our job, forgetting that archives are not just a case of opening your door, but traveling to places and pointing out to them that a door even exists. But it is part of a discipline that, in tradition, has had a lot of problems. As most traditions do. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for talking about the archive. I think before we get out of here, I would love to know a little bit more about the Disk Master project. I got contacted by a couple developers and they said, you know, we've been working on this project and we don't know what to do, but we don't want to deal with the crowds and the complaints and having to answer all the mail and, and talk to anybody about it what do you think we should do? <laughs> and I was like, well, I'll just do it then. But what this project is by these developers was they recognized that CD-ROMs, uh, disk images, and others are cool. Like the archive has tens of thousands of them, but they're a little hard to go through. Like they come in a format that's very obscure for a lot of people and you don't know what's inside. In the 1990s, there were thousands of CD-ROMs released commercially. That's how we did, you know, Steam and uh, app stores and distribution. In the 90s, you would go down to an actual store. There would be a CD and you would buy it for anywhere between $5 or 
$50 and you would take it home and it would have maybe a program to browse it, but often not. They were so, you know, arbitrarily put together, people started to call them shovelware because you were just shoveling on whatever you could find. Now here in the magical 2020s, we have machines that are capable of not just drilling down into these things, but analyzing them, producing easily browsable versions. So if you have an obscure music file that worked on a very specific computer in 1993, this site makes an MP3 of it that you can listen to immediately. If they have an obscure image format, it produces it so that it's suddenly a JPEG and you can like look at it or download the original. And it's got a search engine that's running against all of the material, over 100 million files as of this count, and they're adding hundreds more every day, where you can search for the content, the extension, the year it was put out for keywords. It's truly magical, especially if you're into vintage software, because not only is the site doing all this, but it's designed from the ground up to work in browsers that work in vintage computers, which is astounding to me. <laughs> so it's designed so a Commodore 64 or an Amiga or an Atari from like the 1980s or 1990s can browse it and get the, the files and be able to play them immediately locally on the original hardware. This thing came out. I hyped it up, got some news stories about it. And suddenly the success stories are showing up 48 to 72 hours after release. Yeah, the conversion layer, it's another wrinkle of digital archiving. Because like, if you find a scroll from 2,000 years ago, it's a piece of paper. You can still like look at it and hopefully read it. But like... You know, a TIFF file from nine, a BMP from ninety three. Like you can't even open that shit anymore, and so you ha we have to recontextualize them again. Well, Matt, BMP, pff, that's training wheels, man. How about a, how about how about a dot AIFF uh, audio right. file or right. an Amiga? You know, interlaced. You know, you're talking like weird, crazy stuff. Video and codex that we barely can keep straight uh, in yeah, 2022. And, and the Disk Master folks have actually OCR'd graphical images so you can wow. search for text in them. They really produce this like world-class thing. And the opposite level to this, the opposite side to this, is it justifies the digital hoarding that I and others at the archive were encouraging, right? Because there would be people who'd say, why are you grabbing all this crap? It, it, you can't go through this thing. Who's going to waste the time to try to find anything in these masses? And I'm like, well, guess what just showed up? My hope is that we will see this for other media types at the archive, right? That we will see companies or programs analyzing our imagery or our sound. We just started using the uh, open sourced um, transcription program Whisper, and I've started running it against the thousands of VHS tapes people have uploaded, and we're going to add it to our search engine. So in the future, if you're looking for a, a name or a product, it will start to say, Oh, yeah, it's in minute 49 of this three-hour tape of recordings from Atlanta in 1989 on VHS tape. That's the community 
That's outsiders looking at this repository and saying, we can do better with this. We can make it work. So Discmaster was a sigh of relief, not just for researchers, but for the archive itself. Because suddenly we looked like we weren't insane. And that's priceless. <laughs> I love that. That's a great place to end it. Not mm-hmm. looking like you're insane. Looking like you're not insane. Priceless. <laughs> We're not insane. We're just eccentric. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. Thank you all. Now we know a lot of things that we didn't know before. And you heard it here first. Listeners out there, the archive needs to become more melanin sufficient and more queer. So start (laughs) uploading all your shit, people. And apparently our voices are on it forever. (laughs) And I will send our lawyers because uh, that is infringement and uh, I will not stand for it. (laughs) We don't have personal lawyers, so... (laughs) <laughs> I think the archive is safe <laughs> Alright y'all Follow us on social media I'm at A-L-L-I underscore G-O-L-D-I I am at the Lindsay Life L-I-N-D-S-E-Y Across all platforms Matt underscore Silverman on the Twitters While it still exists and uh, go, go watch his daughter analyze Harry Potter on the YouTubes uh, Free dad videos uh, Speaking of Discord, discord.gg slash 2G1P Please, please, please Patreon.com slash 2G1P. Also, if you want to leave us a voicemail, I promise we're not going to answer this phone so you don't have to <laughs> be scared, but if you leave us a fun voicemail, we may play it on the show. That number is 347-871-6548. That number again, 347-871-6 You can also email us at 2G1Podcast at gmail.com. You know, topics you want to see covered, we will definitely check that, and that is how we've gotten some show ideas so please check it out find us wherever you want to find us thanks y'all have a great rest of your day bye-bye thank you two girls one podcast is hosted by allison goldberg and lindsey ford then removed from the internet archive for taking up too much space with burning man stories i mean produced by matt silverman in new york city this episode was edited by avital ayler Production assistance is provided by the Podglomerate. This show is a production of The Daily Dot, the number one source for in-depth reporting about life on the internet. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.